Hello, I'm Bill Oyster, bamboo fly rod maker and hand engraver, working out of Blue Ridge, Georgia, and welcome to Cut the Craft. Amy, you have a great voice for this. You've got like an NPR voice. <laughs> That's so funny. Brian tells me that a lot, and I've I've heard it from other people, but I've never... It's, I, I don't know. I, it, I, I'll take it. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I'm on fresh air or something. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> well, you know, I did work at a radio station in college. Oh, did so, you? Yeah. I don't know if it, it, yeah, uh, it makes sense. Well, I don't mean to bring attention to it, Umble, but <laughs> she'll do like the NPR, like, like where you're, someone's talking, then you go like, mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm. All right. <laughs> <laughs> this is just Keeping normal. Yeah, yeah. That, <laughs> like for me, it's like, oh my gosh, if I do another, mm-hmm, I'm going to go crazy because I have to listen to myself <laughs> on these podcasts. And so I, I thought about like writing a big note and putting it like on a post-it note in front of my face when I'm <laughs> interviewing people. <laughs> Stop the uh huhs. <laughs> right. I have that, but I say, uh, uh, <laughs> well, uh, just you know. oyster deliberation. I've been working on that one for 49 years. <laughs> oh man, that's funny. Well, welcome to Cut the Craft, everybody. I'm Brian. And I'm Amy. And we are here with Bill Oyster, a bamboo fly rod maker and hand engraver. Bill, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Brian. Yay. Awesome. Thank you for joining us. So, uh, Bill, can you tell us more about what you make? Like, what's the work and your process? So, uh, we make the custom split bamboo fly rods. It's the way it was done since about 1840s. It was invented in the United States. Um, and uh, it's just a handmade version of the fly rod that was the, the pinnacle of the craft from about 1850 till 1950 when it started to be replaced by more modern alternatives, fiberglass and then graphite and carbon fiber and things like that. But before that, uh, bamboo was the material of choice. And for a lot of fly fishermen, that's still sort of the, the pinnacle of tackle and um, certainly the most beautiful and traditional. And a lot of people appreciate it for that as well. Is there an advantage of bamboo over carbon fiber rods i know i'm right. really i, right. I you can tell <laughs> that i don't know anything about this <laughs> yeah it's all right i think it's very really cool. few people do if it makes you feel any better so okay good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're a niche within a niche here mm. so uh, well you know as far as the advantages go i mean obviously modern materials things are getting lighter and more powerful and less expensive and Mm-hmm. Modern fly fishing rods are fantastic tools. They're incredible tools, but they'll only ever be a tool. And that's mm-hmm. where bamboo fly rods come in because they're more the art side of things. You know, and mm-hmm. an old an old fiberglass rod is just an old tool, but an old bamboo rod, for whatever reason, the maybe it's the naturalness <laughs> of it. I don't know. But um, it tends to collect history, better flack, for better saying. You know, this is huh. um, it's the heritage of uh, the American fly fisher and the modern materials. Even if they're 
faster and cheaper and more powerful. Um, they just can't compete with it. They don't have the same kind of soulfulness and artistry and, mm-hmm. as a handmade wooden thing versus a plastic thing. Huh. Sure. Well, so when in, when you say split fly, split bamboo fly rod, some people listening might know a tiny bit about fly fishing or fly rods, but most people are just probably picturing like a sprig of bamboo that has like a little right. bobber and line attached to it. <laughs> <Yeah>. so. <laughs> right. <laughs> Not what it is. <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, split bamboo, the reason for that is what's, what happens is they can't just um, pick a piece of bamboo and use that as a fly rod because in fly fishing, unlike spin fishing where you throw the weight of the lure in fly fishing, you're actually casting the fly line and the line is made to unroll forward and backwards and then it just flips over the virtually weightless fly at the end of it. Mm-hmm. So it's all about directing this line, how to unroll through the air, kind of like a bullwhip or something. Mm-hmm. And uh, okay. so it has to be um, the right stiffness along different points of its length. So we have to be able to control that size. So a split bamboo rod, what they realized when they started looking at the bamboo and we're going to have to shave it down and shape it. It's not uniform material all the way through. There's a very thin band of fibers on the outermost edge. And the stocks of bamboo are usually about two and a half inches in diameter. Um, but the working material, the workable material is only an eighth of an inch or less on the outermost edge. So they're going to need multiple pieces of the stuff to put together. And by splitting it, we're able to follow the natural grain of the bamboo, which isn't perfectly straight, but then use heat and pressure to bring it into alignment and then shape all of these individual strips into triangles, taper those triangles fat to thin and put six of them together into a hexagon for each section. So if that doesn't completely lose you, but the but so <laughs> <laughs> so if it's a three section rod, a butt section, a mid section, and a tip section, you join them all together and go fishing. Each of those sections was made from six strips of bamboo. So eighteen individual strips are needed just to make one fly rod, um, which are then turned into triangles and glued lengthwise into a hexagon. So it's like if you were to slice it horizontally, it would look like six little pizza slices. Yes, exactly. All meeting in the middle. So it's solid all the way through. Um, we plane with very tight tolerances. So you'd have to look really close to even see that it didn't grow that way. But if you could look really close, you could see the, the seams where all the little triangles come together. And so then you were talking about like the butt piece and the middle piece and the tip. And then those are joined by like little metal couplings. And your that's what you're... That's like your engraving canvas. That's where the metal work comes in. Yeah, so that you've got your pieces of bamboo, and we couldn't just do one long piece just because it's usually about eight feet long, and it's just too hard to transport. So people want multiple-piece rods so they can break them down and carry them around, put them in the car or whatever. <clears throat> but uh, So you need little connecting sleeves, for lack of a better word, male and female connectors that uh, are made of nickel silver and they make little nickel silver tubes a couple of inches long and then also we need metal hardware little bands and straps and screw threads to hold on the reel to the bottom of the rod and all of those metal pieces are prime opportunities for engraving and 
customization. Mm -hmm. And that's where we do all that on the ferrules and the real seat hardware. Cool. So what, what's the subject matter for the engraving? Are you, are you engraving like people's initials or like little pictures of people fly fishing? <laughs> uh, yes. And yes, <laughs> <laughs> it is vast majority of all the rods we do are completely custom, especially the engraved ones because oh. we won't put hundred hours of work into one, just hoping to sell to someone. Right. Um, but we can put many hundreds of hours into one rod for custom. So mm-hmm. if they want something as simple as their initials on it, then we can do that. Um, and sometimes we do that, but uh, we do a lot of scroll work, you know, the classic filigree, you know, the little vine stylized vine scroll to, just for coverage mm-hmm. and then scenes uh, sculpting in, in different scenes obviously a lot of fishing related, you know, a fly or a leaping trout or something like this, but Mm -hmm. also it could be anything. I mean, um, low company logos for all those guys using their company funds to buy their fishing rods, (laughs) Uh, (laughs) their tax free gifts to each other. They're Um, like advertising. Right. Exactly. (laughs) Um, portraits we've done. Uh, I've, I've done people's parrots, their dogs, their children, <laughs> their uh, anything you can imagine, really. If you get on our website, you can see there's probably hundreds of them, and I don't even take pictures of about half of them. Uh, wow. But uh, just about anything you could imagine, because it's literally anything our customers imagine. They come to us and they right. say, I want this, I want that. And, um, and you never know what it's going to be. I mean, we did one. For a guy recently, it was all uh, American themed because he was an immigrant and had made his fortune. You know, the American dream uh, mm-hmm. came from Cuba and um, money was no object to him at this point. And he wanted a whole uh, like game animals of the United States. And so we started oh. a fish on the bottom. And as we worked our way up, we went into the ground animals with the bushes and the grass and the rabbits and the deer and then up into the canopy where there was <clears throat> birds flying and things like this and uh, American flags and gold inlay. I mean, it was just crazy. Wow. So it's, it's, it really becomes an art piece after a certain point, you know, we yeah. make basic rods, but we also make rods that are uh, made to pass down, you know, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. legacy type stuff. If you, if someone said, I want you to do your, like, go all out, kind of like it sounds like this project was, but they said, I just want you to do whatever you want to do. Right. What would you do? (laughs) (laughs) Probably go fishing. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) You know, I would, (laughs) it's, I would probably keep it relatively classic, you know, Mm -hmm. um, but also I like to show what we can do here that people can't do in other places, you know, our competitors for example, or through history, like what it is that we do so well. So um, I would emphasize all of the the performance features and then the aesthetic things and uh, that we do. So sculpted scenes, but I would keep it, you know, fly fishing sort of theme kind of running Mm -hmm. through it. But I love doing inlay. I love sculpting. I love mm-hmm. uh, adding all the artistry to it, but still 
it's still, it's very, you would think it could get really gauche after a while, but everything is so small. And other than the gold inlay, which even then is very small, uh, it's it's still pretty subtle and and classic, you know, but, um, you know, we'd, we'd go pretty, pretty wild with it, but stay traditional, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I would love to get one that just had like a bunch of bowling themed stuff on there because I just think it would look really fun to see like the sculpted pins. <laughs> we, honestly, I'm pr- I'm pretty sure I've done that before. Uh, to tell no you the truth, I, I feel like uh, that uh, I'm pretty sure that I have done that. I have to go back and look through. My oh, that's so fun. Yeah. I'm sorry, I don't know why that popped in my head. But we, we had a we had a doctor who uh, made his career on hip replacements. So I did a gold inlaid uh, t- titanium hip rod, ball and rod <laughs> insert. Like nobody would even know what it was except for this guy, you know. But for him, that was that was his thing, you know. He was like, I um, owe it all to you. I owe right. it all to the hips. <laughs> exactly. Um, you never know what's important to people. Oh, right. So but that's what we're doing. That's what the customizing does is it's uh, it's we're helping them remember what's important to them. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so we help them work with their ideas and commemorate those things that mean mm-hmm. something to them, which we that's never right. know what it's going to be, which is what makes it challenging and fun. Can you give folks a idea of the scale that you're working at? Like, these are very small engravings, right, right. correct? Yes, yeah. So the ferrules, the little connecting pieces, are usually about, on average, about two inches long and about the diameter of a straw or a pencil. Jeez. And um, and then and they're very thin too. So I'm doing a lot of engraving and even gold inlay on those. So you have to work very carefully and very shallow. Mm-hmm. And then on the real seat hardware, it's about like you could put it on your middle finger. It's like a half inch thick, not thick, but wide ring that you put mm-hmm. on your finger. So it's like a little thimble on the bottom. So this, the very bottom of the butt cap, we call it, it's a little plate. It's about the size of a penny. Uh, so very small. So if I do a scene with the grandfather helping two children cast on a river with the bridge behind them in the mountains and the sky, this gold inlay, which is a very common kind of thing that I would do here. Drink it all down to about the size of a penny. So obviously working under magnification to pull this off. That is just incredible. Yeah, it is funny though because like you look at pictures of you engraving, and if you if people didn't know what you were doing, it would look like you were like studying some kind of like bacterial cell because you're just right. like looking at like a microscope. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh really? Yeah, yeah. Wow. People come in the showroom all the time and they can see through the glass, and we've got the little TV so they can see what I'm seeing, uh-huh. but they don't know. They tend to look straight at me. 
and they're just <laughs> squinting and trying to figure out what I'm doing. And they're like, oh, is he tying flies? Or like nobody ever has any, and I have to point up at the TV above their head. So, yeah. They're like, no, <laughs> they're like, no, he's developing a vaccine. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's very confusing. Oh, man. Especially when they come into what they think is a fly fishing place, you know. Right, see right. See a guy right. working through a microscope. Yeah. Wow. Wow. <laughs> The John C. Campbell Folk School in beautiful Brasstown, North Carolina is still hiring. Visit the Employment Opportunities page at folkschool.org to learn more about open positions and how to apply. Also, classes will be resuming at the Folk School starting May 2nd. If you're interested in registering for a class, browse their e-catalog online, or if you prefer, you can request a print catalog. And don't forget, there are scholarship opportunities available. So, whether you want to apply for a job, check out upcoming courses, or apply for scholarships, I'd recommend checking out folkschool.org. It's got everything. Our sponsor, North House Folk School, teaches traditional craft online and on the shores of Lake Superior. You can learn everything from blacksmithing to fly fishing and from shoemaking to woodworking. Also, North House is hiring. Visit northhouse.org to learn more about their classes and open positions. Once again, that's northhouse.org. Check them out today. So can you tell us a little bit about like professional cycling and like the background that you have? Because from what I understand, you've kind of really made a jump <laughs> yeah, it wasn't an immediate career. pathway. It wasn't a, a, a expected uh, transitional move there. But um, yeah. what happened? Yes, it's well. So <laughs> I've had a couple of those in my life, uh, right? Actually, but uh, that particular one, when I used to be in college, I started riding bikes and. Turns out I can ride them pretty quick, strangely. And um, <laughs> turns turns out there's people that will pay you money for riding the bicycle quickly. Who knew? But uh, so uh, and so I've always had strange, low-paying passion jobs. So that <laughs> that helped pave the way for that. But um, fly fishing was my escape from that. That was mm. it was non-competitive. It was non-stressful. It wasn't physically painful. In fact, the cold water felt great on your legs that were always mm. trashed, you know. Okay. So it was the exact opposite of everything I did normally in my day, you know. Uh-huh. Um, so uh, we were always traveling, always on the road, uh, always sick. <laughs> uh, so, But you just go out in nature then and just kind of recoup, you know. Mm-hmm. The sun and the water and it was just a completely different thing and i i was pretty much in the middle of my cycling career and thought i had a number of years to go and i was still getting better each year and uh, had a training accident that busted me up a little bit and i couldn't ride for about six months and um I was already married at this point and I was in my mid twenties and I didn't start until I was in college. So I felt like I was always behind, you know, by European standards, those guys start when they're like four. So even though I was, 
now competing against those guys, they had, you know, decade and a half on me. And so I felt like I had done everything there was to do in the United States. I didn't have any lines on a European team. And it just made me kind of re that, that downtime had me reevaluate. Do I, am I, do I need to keep doing this? Is it going anywhere or is it time to look for something else? And, and I was already married uh, to my wife, Shannon, and she had never had me at home before all the time she had known me, I was always traveling. So when I went to go back to that first race at the end of the season, I came back just in time to do the one last race um, just to see how much I had lost, you know, after that downtime. And as I'm getting in the car to leave, she's like standing at the door with tears in her eyes. And I was Aww. like, yeah, it's time to, time to move on. So the next year I didn't, uh, I didn't get a con or didn't look for a contract and decided to do something else, but had no idea what to do because I had planned, I had years to decide, you know, on what was next. And I figured something would come along naturally, but so, but all of a sudden I had all this time and all this energy and I just threw it all into the fly fishing, which was the only other thing I wanted to do. And, um, so, and then, and, you know, and I looked for other jobs, tried this and that, um, you know, Shannon's family's in real estate and, uh, and mortgages. And I looked at all the normal, let's make money kinds of jobs, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it was a great time there. All that stuff was booming. You know, you can make a ton of money, but I couldn't get enthusiastic about making money. And I, mm-hmm. and I like, tried to, I tried to convince myself, pump myself up, try to like <laughs> think of like really nice things. It would be cool to own. And I just couldn't do it. You know, I mean, I tried, it makes so much sense to make, to go after the dollar, especially when it's like right there to be had, but I just, it never felt good to me. I did. I was so used to doing something because I was passionate about it, you know? So the fly fishing thing just kept going. That was the one consistency while I was bouncing, try this, try that. I mean, I general contracted a half a dozen houses and we sell a expensive house on the lake. And it was just miserable dealing with people who didn't care about their craft. They just wanted to, I'm sure, and I know there's good ones out there, but when real estate's right. booming and building is booming, it, they were hard to find. And uh, I just couldn't believe that people didn't care about their own work, you know. And uh, I got mm-hmm. more feeling of accomplishment from sweeping the floor at the right. end of the day than I did seeing the whole project come together because I didn't want to manage people. <laughs> I wanted to do something, you know. So yeah. So the 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 fly rod, the the bamboo rods, that was totally not a business thing. That was. Uh, just I just thought it would be cool and I just happened to find an old book on it when I was looking to buy one I was trying to educate myself about it and um, that was one of the side effects of having a little bit of money starting to come in is maybe I could buy a bamboo fly rod but as I as I started to learn about it I got more and more intrigued with the process itself and uh, I was like man the only thing cooler than buying one is be if I could I can make one myself. I'd be the coolest person I know, you know? (laughs) (laughs) 
in my mind. <laughs> it's like picturing you with like you got like a leather jacket on and sunglasses, just holding like a bamboo fly rod. Be like, yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Like when you bound your first book. Yeah, I was so pumped. <laughs> yeah. Then I showed her someone like, yeah, it's a book. Who cares? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know those are like four ninety five. But uh, so yeah, same kind of thing, just uh, by my standards. So, um, <laughs> but but the way the business came around was, I was just picking at it, just having a great time, and I thought I'd found a great little hobby to at least distract myself from the misery of trying to make money. <laughs> and um, a buddy of mine who was actually into the fly fishing industry, which I didn't even think of as being a thing, he's in magazines and writes articles and TV shows and, and he was just a fishing buddy of mine. And, uh, but he told the Atlanta paper, uh, a writer for the outdoor page about what I was doing. And he calls me and says, can I come up and check it out? I was like, sure. Nobody else is interested. You might as well. <laughs> <laughs> so this writer comes up and talks to me for the day, takes some pictures, goes away. I don't think anything more of it. And, about six weeks later, all of a sudden I wake up and this is back when we had answering machines and my phone is just flashing and I've got all these messages by like nine o'clock in the morning. I'm like, what on earth is going on? And I start listening to them and one after the next, it's guys wanting to buy bamboo rods from me because there was nobody doing it in the area at the time mm -hmm. and uh, there weren't many people doing it, period. And, um, so I got all their names and all their numbers and wrote them down on a sheet of paper and got the phone so I could call them all back and tell them I don't sell fly rods to people. I just do this for a hobby. And then like the faintest little flickering light bulb started to go over and pop in my head. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, you know, and I didn't want to ruin a perfectly good hobby. So, you know, so, right. Right. But I figured, you know what, I'll tell, I also have learned enough in my time that you don't waste opportunities because they don't come along that often so don't be afraid to try things and i was like you know what I'll, I'll, if i make this half a dozen rods and it goes horribly i'll never sell another rod and then i won't have to wonder if i missed anything you know? right mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so i called them all back gave them a price and took a half a dozen orders and um nervously set out on that road and by the time i'd got those six done i had another 12 waiting behind them and when i got those 12 i had another 24 and <laughs> before long i had a four-year backlog of rods uh and was working seven days a week to day and night and still not making a decent living and realized i was going to have to start thinking like a business person too mm. wow that's that's the journey from a professional bicycle racer to a bamboo fly rod maker. And we didn't even cover the tobacco farm days. No, no, that was how I that was how I got into uh, being a pilot, uh, and then I got from pilot to bicycle racer. So pilot, <laughs> what? Uh, yeah, I've, I've been I've been as busy as possible for all this time. So, did you start out engraving as well, or were you? Like, did you start, I want to say just making bamboo fly rods, but I know that's kind of a huge, <laughs> it's a huge thing. But um, were you like engraving right away as well? Or did you have to kind of like teach yourself that as you went along? 
Right. Well, yeah, that's another weird one that came along. I wouldn't have thought I would end up spending all as much time as I do engraving, which is a ton of time now. But um, mm-hmm. so, no, I was just making the rods and I was doing pretty well at that. And so they were getting nicer and nicer. So I started to kind of naturally evolve into the higher end of the market for mm-hmm. rods. And um, then at one point I had a wife call me who was ordering one for her husband and she wanted to know if I could have it engraved. It was a special, it was a retirement gift or something extra special. And, and I said, well, I don't, you know, I don't know. I, let me look around, see if I can find somebody to get that done for us. And so uh, I found uh, an engraver in Atlanta and I went down and met with him and I started learning about that. And uh, because I'm a hands-on guy, I started getting intrigued with that whole deal too. And so I talked to him and asked him if he could do it. And he said it, that he thought he could. And and we talked about how that would work if he was going to do it for us. And But I told him from that very first meeting that, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a hands-on kind of guy. And I, I said, I got to tell you, I would – have you ever considered teaching anybody? Because as much as as cool as I think this is, I'd really love to learn to do it myself. Mm-hmm. And he scoffed and said, not just anybody can learn to hand engrave. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, uh, all right. <laughs> I won't tell you what I, what I actually said in my mind, but um, <laughs> so. <laughs> what is like too, that, that saying that to someone automatically means, and you're not one of those people. Oh yeah. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. And, he, and he had just met me that he had no idea what I could or couldn't do. It was just yeah. the idea that does it, no one else can. Right. You know? Yeah. Uh, right. Don't even try, which was just like the bamboo rods were when I got into that. It's just like, uh, you know, don't even think about trying. It's too complicated, too hard. I can do it. You cannot. And, uh, <laughs> it's a strange attitude, but, uh, but so, so of course, being a competitive kind of guy that registered as a challenge in my mind, and, <laughs> I don't know where that guy's at these days. I don't ever hear about him, but um, (laughs) (laughs) that's really funny. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, but I worked with him for a while for a a couple of years and, but he didn't know anything about fly rods. So I would say there's some big event coming up that this rod is the big gift for, and the rod's been done for weeks and I'm waiting on the engraving and the dates get closer and closer. I'm like, where's my hardware? And then I would get it like the day before and it's upside down, oh. you know? Oh. And, and I ran into that enough times. That I like, I can't stake my reputation on someone else's work like this, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I said, I either have to just take it completely off the menu or I've got to bring it in house. And, um, although college, I started out at Georgia Tech's aerospace engineering and then English with, uh, I mean, university of Florida with English literature and philosophy and then university of Georgia with education and then studio <laughs> art, but studio art was my final major. And this is where I should have been all along. That was my natural fit. I just seemed like a Money, it turns out I was right, but um, <laughs> but it was the most helpful thing that I studied, and so I was like, you know, I can draw and stuff. So 
and I know I can make things. So I'm just going to take a chance on myself. And I just decided right then I would never, and I had a whole bunch of engraving orders on the books and I was like, I'm never sending another penny out on that. I'm going to figure out how to do it. So I went to engraving school in Kansas out at GRS and, uh, took the intro class there, not knowing, because you could be good at one form of art and terrible at another, you know, you never know what's your natural abilities because I was kind of a sketcher, you know, and um, engraving is very smooth line oriented. You also knew that only a certain type of person can be an engraver. Yeah, not just anybody, (laughs) which had me... Which had me a little oh, nervous yeah. right off the right. bat, you know, I, yeah. I had heard. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, but no, I went out there and then I went back every summer until I'd studied everything until they started asking me what the heck I was doing there. And then they made me an instructor out there. So, <laughs> but, uh, so I went and got professional help to learn to engrave, but because I had the orders already, soon as I could get competent enough to satisfy at least myself, I had plenty of work. And mm-hmm. because I brought it in house and I could talk directly to the customers and I could encourage them in one direction or the other and show them things and discuss all of a sudden that offering just went through the roof. And um, now I engrave at least 60 hours a week, I'd say on average. Jeez. Wow. Well, and so, I mean, this also has gone from being a bamboo fly rod side hobby to, I mean, now you'll have like a storefront and front of the house people and you have another person, Riley, who's making most of the rods at this point, right? And then you're mostly doing engraving? We've got uh, half a dozen people now pretty well. Um, so, yeah, when it, when it was just me and like I said, I thought, you know, you just get these orders and get these prices. You have to work and you've got it made. And I did the math on it and I was like, you know, still can't hit a middle class income, you know, <laughs> doing this. If you think of all the business expenses associated, you know, yeah, there's yeah. a lot to running a business. So um, we had to start thinking a little more business realize we need to become a rod company mm-hmm. and not just a guy. And that's when I quit signing the rods myself when we put our logo on it. I also don't want it to end when I'm ready to retire. I don't want my life's work to just end, you know, mm-hmm. I want to build uh, something that continues. And um, so, yeah, I've got uh, two guys, Riley and uh, Dean is also full time with us and they do most of the bamboo work itself. Um, unless we're in like a bind, we need to catch up on something. For the most part, they do most of the planing and um, that sort of stuff that doesn't really change. You know, you have to plane it, you have to heat it, and it, uh, stuff that I've done a thousand times. And I'm the only one that does the engraving, so they can do the engraving in, in the house here. So I've got to spend most of my time on that. And then my wife and her assistant, Cassie, uh, they do all the real work, you know, all of the uh, emails, the business, the sales tax forms, the marketing, the yeah. dealing, scheduling with clients and paperwork, all that kind of stuff. So, uh, but yeah, we've got our storefront now. We've got our school where we teach um, and the production and the retail showroom and the inn upstairs. So it's turned into quite a little, quite a little fiasco. <laughs> <laughs> um. So you mentioned that there were challenges 
with starting to learn, like people were just like, oh, you can't, there, there's no way you'll be able to figure this out. It's only for right. people like myself. Um, right, so, exactly. <laughs> um, and, and now you're teaching people. Do you, what's going on there? <laughs> well, I, I think, I think a lot of the old traditional crafts, and I don't know if you've seen it, you, there was such a master and apprentice kind of uh, way of thinking, um, the way it used to be handed down. And um, like one of my engraving teachers when I was learning would tell me how when he would work at his original studio, um, anytime you went in the room where the main engraver worked, he would just take his apron and cover all of his work and his tools and he would just sit until you left the room. It wouldn't even... He what? wouldn't even work if there was another person in the same room. Whoa. And, uh, <laughs> and, and even if they weren't interested in engraving, just he just, it was, it was, that was your livelihood. And it, the idea was you protect it and you, it only goes to who you say it goes to, you know? And, mm-hmm. um, wow. and that would be like one person who <laughs> just then continues after you, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and this kind of attitude seemed to get handed down with some of these traditional crafts. Um, and so with the rods, when I first started, first off, I couldn't find anybody. I went to Atlanta. There's a big fly shop there that's been around a long, long time. And they kind of know everybody in the scene. And I said, you know, anybody that knows anything about making traditional bamboo rods. And he was like, oh, yeah, you got to go see – you know, old Jerry there. And I got his phone number and I called him and he's like, yeah, come on out to the shop. I go out there. He'd made about a quarter of the way into the process and then had given up. And as, as far as he made it, he's like, Oh, but you should talk to Ted, you know? So I go to his house and Ted had made it halfway into the process before he'd given up. You know? and I, I never found a single person who had actually completed it. And then, uh, <laughs> So I I just decided, you know what, it may be the worst looking, worst casting rod ever, but I'm going to complete the darn thing. I'm not going to be another (laughs) half rod wonder. So So I found every old book, you know, some very big and some rather helpful, some small and completely unhelpful um, (laughs) that were somewhere a hundred years old, some were newer and, um, and it seemed like most of them were kind of written more from the standpoint of this is how much I know more than you can do it sort of right, <laughs> an aspect. Wow. But uh, so I read all of them twice, literally before I got up the nerve to order some bamboo. And then I just reread step one from every book. And then I would, I like what this guy's saying. I have no idea what that guy's saying. I don't understand what this person's saying. And, <laughs> and I would try it. And then I would, just work my way through it. So my method was always based on results and not following any one person's exact routine because now, as long as I've been doing it now, I can see that there's a lot of uh, nonsense in some of these things. And a lot of these books were written. The reason they were so willing to share is because they weren't actual full-time professionals. You know what I mean? That's how they were trying to get themselves exposed to become that. But so they didn't, a lot of the guys writing didn't know a lot of the guys that knew weren't talking. Um, so, but it's been super helpful with the classes because I struggled through every possible 
method. You tried all the scenarios. <laughs> yeah, I tried and failed at every possible way you could. So when uh, in the classes, when they said, what about this or what about that? Or they screw something up. I know exactly how to steer things back on course there. So uh, Yeah. Well, so... Um, so you, um, there are, you're not the only person making bamboo fly rods in, right? Correct. And so Correct. how, how did those people, was there any kind of like, oh no, Bill's like, you know, opening up the can of worms or like blew the lid off the secret or whatever, the secret's right. out, you know, like are people, oh, yeah. was there a sort of like kickback from that within the, the broader community of bamboo fly rod makers when you, you yeah. started doing the school? I would say so. Even when I was getting into it as a younger guy, it was such it was such a small niche mm-hmm. that it was kind of like the you know you had your hardcore core group of guys with some some lineage or connection to the old school guys, and they were all just trying to kind of control that flow. Mm-hmm. So when they saw me just kind of coming out of nowhere, and um, they didn't. They didn't really care for that. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, I got, uh, I always remember another good challenging uh, comments I got was when that article, original article came out, I got a couple weeks later, I got a letter in the mail from Canada and it was a rod maker up there, professional rod maker who just like ripping the article apart and telling me how all this was wrong. That was, and I can't actually do what I'm this and I can't actually do that. And, and just, uh, and I still get some of that today. I've had, uh, I'll get just every once in a while, I'll just get some nasty, (laughs) it's the craziest thing that, um, and so early – and then I went to a big fly fishing show up in Somerset, New Jersey. And this is you – know, I'm still in my 20s getting it going. And, and there were all these guys that I'd read about there and stuff who are now, you know, like 80 years old. And, and uh, I was so excited to meet all these guys, you know. And they wouldn't give me the time of day. They all just huddled in the corner and whispered amongst themselves and scowled in my direction. Oh. And that's <laughs> – and that's when I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to waste my time trying to make inroads with those guys. I'm going straight to the people mm-hmm. and I'm going to become those guys on my own, you know. And, um, and it's, been, it's been so much better uh, this way. And mm-hmm. uh, we've been so much more vastly successful because it's your customers that tell you what they want, you know, not your competitors. The competitors are there to keep you in your place, you know. Right. And right. Um, and they, yeah, they told me once I started with the classes, and the classes resulted because nobody would help me. So when we go to shows or whatever, and people would come up to me, random strangers, they'd say, "What kind of varnish do you use?" You know, I, only thing I knew to say was like, "Oh, I can't. It's proprietary," you know, and. <laughs> I tried that like once or twice and I was like, man, that feels not great. It's gotta be, a, you know, I don't know if I can be one of those guys. And uh, so there's gotta be a better way to do this. And so the class thing just kind of developed naturally for, with interest people. Once I knew people started asking me mm-hmm. and um, so the classes just started to slowly evolve. And yeah, then the other odd makers were like, you're going to put us all out of business in two years. He said, in two years, 
will all be out of business. But of course, if anything, it's just generated a renaissance of interest because totally it was it was dying out. It was going away, you know. And there were guys doing it. There were guys picking at it. Um, I think there was a guy doing a class where you make like the main the shaft of the rod and he did like a handful of guys a year we're running 168 guys a year through here making a complete rod from start to finish Jeez! Mm -hmm. and all those guys are going home and spreading that enthusiasm you know we're booking Mm -hmm. two years solid out now just as fast as we can go and there was not that kind of enthusiasm didn't exist before that market right. did if it was just me telling everybody how great and me and those old crusty guys how great <laughs> fly rods were everybody would think rightly that we're just serving our own interest you know right yeah. but yeah. when their neighbor and fishing buddy comes back and is like look at this awesome thing i made he's got nothing to gain from it he's just he's just enthusiastic and happy you know and that yeah. kind of enthusiasm is what really sells not a not a advertisement in a magazine you know Right, you know, right. But um, so it's really it's done the exact opposite. It's just made the the pie bigger for everybody to share. Yeah, that's awesome. It is really nice. I think it's one of those things where it's like you know being terrified of like competition or like losing every you know that kind of stuff just doesn't right. work. It just doesn't work. <laughs> Like you're sort of creating your own problem. Like why not just have people be happy and excited about what you're making? (laughs) Right. (laughs) Exactly. You have to, you have to just keep your eyes on why you're, you know, you have to do your thing and move forward. That's the way I found it. Coming from a bike racer, I'm in a race with 200 guys. I lost just about all of those races. (laughs) Only only one guy wins out of those 200. Yeah. And, uh, And it's rarely me. So, uh, uh, so it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You can't think like that. You just go for the, you know, you go for the ride, you do your best and you push forward and you can't even listen to, I don't even listen to my own press. Like if I'm on a TV show, I don't even watch it. I can't, I can't, I just stay focused on what I'm doing. I don't Mm -hmm. look at competitors. Mm -hmm. I have no idea what they're doing unless someone else tells me. Because it doesn't matter because I'm just pushing myself forward, you know, as fast as I can all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It, it only slows you down to look behind you. You know what I mean? It's, mm-hmm. Yeah. You got to, got to, got to keep your eyes forward. Culture shows rituals and outward manifestations of home. Home points to heritage. And heritage lives within and breathes with you. Heritage can find you even if you've forgotten, like you'll overhear from our next guest's experiences. He weaves baskets of yesterday, baskets holding history. I remember it like it was yesterday, he recalls of some childhood escapades, but in saying so, he brings yesterday into today. Sweetgrass baskets incorporate bulrush. Bulrush isn't even botanically bulrush, technically but another word for the cattail plant. In other words, words point to origins. I was on a hike this weekend and saw some variant of the cattail, which kids on TikTok can be seen biting into like they're hot dogs lately because they explode and unfurl. 
Though it was a swamp and not a marsh, it felt familiar enough and I felt at home. Being from Charleston, South Carolina, where the notebook was filmed, the Civil War started, and marsh grasses hiss in the humidity when the wind kisses by. I can't tell you about our next guest without including some of my own heritage because he and I were, to borrow his phrasing, born into the same place. They say home is where the heart is, but let's not fall for that cliche. Our hearts are in our chests, and if yours ain't, I don't know how you're listening. But a slow ticking clock in a quiet room can make me feel at home because it reminds me of my Mimi's old house in Hanahan. Or I can conjure the smell of the low country by concentrating on a memory of pluff mud at low tide. Corey Austin mentions weaving sweetgrass baskets at the Charleston City Market. I remember sweating there every other Saturday when my other grandmother, my Mima, would take me. Seeing people making tightly wound baskets out of what looked like thick straw to me at the time. Baskets which Corey tells the intergenerational and cultural history of through his making of and his explanation of their symbolism. Basket weaving as a public speaking expressing the identity of Charleston but even more so the Gullah Geechee people, since their part in Charleston involves bringing their craft abilities with them when they were forced there through enslavement, working under threat of death and making things worth more than money so cash crops could cash in. The more you think about something, the more that something lives in your mind, takes up space in your brain, and is given real consideration. Sometimes conversation causes conversation. Corey mentions a Waffle House close to his heart off of Long Point Road. Brian and I essentially cemented our friendship in during some deep late night talks over some smothered and covered hash browns. Other times conversation causes contemplation. Next episode, Corey Austin is here to remind us the pauses are real. We've talked about this a little bit on the show before, but I mean, Bill was talking about sort of that with like the trade secrets of bamboo mm-hmm. fly rod making and even a little bit with engraving too. Um, mm-hmm. But, and I think I've, we've talked about this before, but like in the book world, it's totally open. Every, you could email the most like, famousest bookbinder in the world and then they would just email you back and you realized it was just like someone in their garage or something like that (laughs) (laughs) and then like let you know whatever you were trying to figure out or at least point you in the right direction and so do you feel like in the wood world is it a mixed bag i've never really encountered any sort of like Anyone who said like, oh, no, that's that's like proprietary information. I can't tell you that. (laughs) But I also amazing. (laughs) I, you know, I also have to say that I I'm often too shy to ask questions, um, which Mm. which is kind of ridiculous because I now I'm asking people questions every Monday, you know, (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I, I think I've just been kind of like that's just not my personality. I like, I, I usually just want to figure it out myself or, Mm -hmm. um, or just don't even think to ask the question. I, I, Mm -hmm. I just sort of like bumbled my way around into knowing what I'm doing. I can relate (laughs) to it. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but I do know as far as teaching goes, I've, I've not really taken classes, but I've taught some 
wood carving classes with like, um, you know, teaching people how to make a spoon out of, a, uh, just from a log, you know, with a, with an ax and the hand tools and stuff. And right. from what I understand, um, a, a lot of people weren't teaching how to, to use the ax and they would just come with like a blank, like a spoon blank and teach people mm. how to carve. And the, if anyone right. asked questions, it'd be just like, you know, they would just say, Oh, it's, it's so hard. You wouldn't be able to do it, but right. that's just kind of, <laughs> that's just kind of hearsay. I've not actually encountered that myself just because I right. was like, well, why wouldn't I know how to, you know, you just start and figure it out. I've never, right. I never asked anybody. I just started doing it. <laughs> Right. <laughs> Before you right. knew you couldn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Before right. someone said, Oh no, you, you you have to be, you know, at least you have to start working with an axe when you're seven in order to know how right. to do this. <laughs> right, right, right. Just like the cyclist. Yeah. It's either it's yeah. two tracks. You can either start working with an axe or start riding a bike professionally. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's uh, a it's a strange thing. I think I got more resistance uh, well early on because nowadays with the internet if you want to know how to do just about anything i do get on youtube mm-hmm. it's pretty much all right there like there's no secrets in the world anymore very <laughs> right, easy, you right. know um you, you, you want to know what the president's thinking read his tweets you know <laughs> uh, <laughs> so uh it but before previous to that seems like it was a little trickier to find mm-hmm. information and things. Mm-hmm. But then also I think I had more of a um, more blowback once I began to achieve success at what I was doing mm-hmm. because you get a lot of guys want to do as strange as it is uh, <laughs> within this little niche, there's a lot of guys who would like to do this as a career and because it's a cool thing. And, um, if you look, if you got online and said, I want to buy a custom bamboo fly rod, for example, you'll find probably hundreds of websites of guys saying they're professional rod makers want to sell you a rod. And of those hundreds of websites, there's literally just a very small handful. I mean, like a half a dozen, maybe (laughs) in the world that guys actually pay their mortgage doing this, you know, and right, all the rest right. of them are wishing that they could, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, but it's, it's a hard, it's a hard, you know, if I had to put the same amount of time and energy into working at McDonald's, I'd live in a mansion now, you know, so, <laughs> <Right>. um, <laughs> a McMansion. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> wow. I got a good one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice humble. There, there, there's our sound bite for this interview. Yes, <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so that gets kind of weird with uh, with those guys. But there's also a scene. Uh, but I don't want to make it sound like it's the whole community's that way because it's not. Because it's also a very scene, big scene of enthusiasts and hobby guys. They have gatherings um, and where they get together and they share information and mm-hmm. and, uh, and things like this. And there's a very big enthusiast scene mm-hmm. like that. Um, mm-hmm. But um, 
yeah so it's not really those guys that are that are any issue and um, a lot of our guys have gone on and make rods we have guys that come and take our classes and then pop up those websites and sell <laughs> rods and that's a wonderful thing because like i said we can't do it all we can't create the market all on our own you know right, we need right. all those guys and for those guys it's great too because they they'll sell just enough to kind of maintain their hobby and um you know feels good to make something and sell it and uh, and most of them are retired from some actual job anyway <laughs> so <laughs> so it all works out uh, yeah way, yeah way but there are a lot of uh, giving and guys that will share their time and, and energy and then there's guys that are just in it for the you know for self-promotion for the immense like wealth that can be had yes the ex- <laughs> immense wealth and fame that often comes <laughs> from bamboo fly rod making <laughs> exactly right well i do think too that it's such an important lesson to learn that when you are more open like it only benefits yourself as well i mean yeah it, mm-hmm. it's i feel like that's sort of the general theme i'm picking up on from this conversation is it's sort of like if you come across as open and nice and willing to share what you know and things like that then those people learn and even if they in some way become you know a quote-unquote competitor or like a colleague or something they're still going to have a good opinion of you you know and right that seems to be a nice a nice thing about it it just sort of like you know creates a nice uh sense of camaraderie amongst the right. yeah. live people <laughs> absolutely and, and my idea with that as far as people talking about competitors or anything like that is um the guys that you would have to earn yourself from being a competitor or whatever they don't need you you know what i mean like like mm-hmm. i got to where i'm at with no class uh, nobody teaching me anything nobody helping me and I still got here. Mm-hmm. Um, anybody who's going to be my competition would also get here with or without me. You know what I mean? Right, so I right. might as well be the guy that taught the guy that replaced me. Right. <laughs> 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 and the guy that just uh, was a jerk to him and got replaced by him. So, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like you said, at least they'll say nice things about you. <laughs> <laughs> so... I'm going to sort of shift the conversation here a little bit. So I was reading on your website, you talk about the action of fishing, like the response to another living thing and why that's important to you. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, I think it's, uh, it's not, it's me, but it's fishermen in general. Uh, Mm -hmm. The interesting thing about it is it seems to be, something that's kind of everybody can enjoy it to some degree i think you know if you took somebody with no interest and and they were on vacation and they stuck a you know, all of a sudden they felt a living thing tugging on the other you would get that moment mm-hmm. of electricity mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. for uh, someone who like myself who is just a, a fisherman it's just something that's primal and is just in you uh, for lack of a better word, is nobody in my family liked to fish at all. It's not like I was raised and taught this and it was kind of ingrained in me to appreciate this. Like they all thought I was nuts, but I was like, <laughs> I was like eight years old and I would just get my stuff and I would walk down the road to the pond that who knows who owned it. It was down the street and I would just sit there and fish 
all day, you know, wow. and I would, I would put the fish in a bucket, carry them home, show everybody, walk them all the way back and then dump them back in. The pond, <laughs> That's you <know>? so cute. <laughs> <laughs> and I literally remember the first time I was ever taken fishing and I don't remember the fishing. I don't remember if I caught anything. I don't even know if I went alive, but I remember looking in the water and seeing them just like looking into the water as like three years old and mm -hmm. seeing these living things under there and just wanting a closer look at them. You know, I'm like, I must wow. possess that. Uh, <laughs> so but what it is uh, uh, <laughs> nowadays and with a lot of people that carry it on, it's, it's participating in nature. Mm -hmm. it, it's, you're not just going and observing it, which is amazing as well. You know, you go and you go camping and you look at the beautiful views and it's just, it does good things for your soul. But if you go and you actually interact with <laughs> living things in nature and the nice thing about fly fishing is as a very big conservation ethos, it's a very big, um, catch and release i haven't kept a fish in 25 years probably and i and i've caught a lot of fish in those times but uh, -huh. uh and, and it's not that i'm anti-hunter for the guys who are hunting and eating mm -hmm. because if you eat meat that was raised in a cage what's you know at least this the animal had a fighting chance if you hunted it and eat it mm -hmm. but I don't need that fish to eat, you know, I can have my bean burrito and be just as happy. Um, <laughs> so the joy in it for me is the pursuit and the, the catching or the trying to catch it's mm -hmm. that interaction. So I don't know. It's, it, um, there's something about your primal, uh, <laughs> urges that are satisfied by getting <laughs> out there and participating actively in the nature. I mean, to, to catch food is something mm -hmm. that's just in our genetic code I, I believe mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. and you get to satisfy it this way but without uh, without damaging the resource you know without, mm -hmm. without you know we try to take very good care of the animals and because uh, we appreciate them so much and so it's just a special way to participate in nature uh. mm -hmm. so I think you touched on this a little bit, like the history of bamboo fly rods. Like what were people, you said that the fly rods that you make were basically kind of like invented in the United States in like the 1850s yeah. or sixties. And so like, well, what were people using before? And like, how did people catch fish before 1830? How did, how did we get the fish? Yeah. How did we eat fish? Right. Nets? <laughs> now, of course, there was fishing goes back and fly fishing goes back <laughs> a yeah. long ways, depending on exactly how you define fly fishing. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. They could go back as far as Egyptian times where they're using oh, wow. artificial uh, insects. Huh. But if you just get, most people that think of bamboo fly rods, exporting guys, they'll think of like the old English chalk streams and the guys in their tweeds and kind of the stuffy, pretentious kind of thing. But <laughs> over in Europe, <laughs> before the 1850s, the rods were made of wood. They were um, yew wood, uh, green heart, 
lance wood, uh, any flexible, strong type of wood, anything they would make mm-hmm. bows out of, anything they would make marine lumber that could mm-hmm. withstand that was potentially they'd make it a fishing rod of some sort. <laughs> and what happened was the, the English had at one point used uh, like a little shoot of bamboo on the end of their wooden rod just because they noticed how lively and springy it was. And it was a good job of protecting the leader of your line so it didn't break if you caught a big fish. And um, the rod started getting shorter and lighter. And what they realized is the best part of the whole rod is that little shoot of bamboo out on the end. And so then they wanted to make the whole thing out of bamboo. And, but then, like I said, they'd have to in some way be able to control the action of it because it's not just a uniform flexing thing. It's you want to be stiffer here and softer there. And it has to you know perfectly unroll that line as efficiently as possible. Mm-hmm. So they had to use multiple pieces of it. And it went through a lot of trial and error and different configurations. But the, the bamboo fly rod is anglers think of it these days was first appeared in about 1846 in the United States. And shortly after 1850, the Leonard Rod Company and the Industrial Revolution, they, they actually had machines where they could, didn't even have to hand plane them. They could run them through these giant routers, so to speak, and blades and cut them into, even if it was a little crude by modern standards or handmade standards, but they could bang them out by the thousands and that really solidified it as the way that they would be made now. And it did such a better job than the older wooden rods, such more lively, such greater tensile strength. And then the Hardy company from England ordered one from the Leonard rod company and reverse engineered it. And then they started producing <laughs> them in England as on Michelle in France and it spread to Europe in that way. But yeah, it originated here in the United States. So uh, huh. for such a young country, we can't lay claim to a lot of traditional crafts, but that's, that's one of them, the split bamboo flower. Hmm. Wow. So interesting. I always wanted to be a really good fly fisher woman. <laughs> and I just, it just escapes me. I, I, I try so hard. I need, I need like, um, I need someone to teach me how to do it. Professional so. help. <laughs> yeah, I need professional help for sure. <laughs> You'll have to come visit the shop sometime. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> this this next question I have, I I'm excited to ask you because sometimes we get craftspeople who have done like came out of school, whatever, you know, learning that they had and went straight into their craft and that's all they've done forever, which is totally right. fine. But, um, so what about making bamboo fly rods and engraving satisfy something you wouldn't get from another career? And what are some of the challenges? For me, it was, I think I alluded to earlier, it was like the money of other careers to work just so that you could do something in your off time that you were interested in. Mm-hmm. It just didn't work for me. I, I tried. To, <laughs> I gave it a solid effort and just <laughs> couldn't do it. Um, I was terrible at anything that I didn't care about, you know. Um, so I didn't really have much. Of, <laughs> yeah, I didn't really have much of a choice, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had to find a way to make a living at something I did care about. So. 
what it satisfies for me versus the career that just makes a living for me was that need to make something. I, like I, I mentioned earlier when we built a house, if I general contracted a house and I watched all these people work on the thing and all I did was make phone calls and, and threaten people if they don't meet timelines. <laughs> um, I got no satisfaction from that, no matter what the paycheck was. It was, but I swept the floor and I felt good. And I was like, look at that. Look how good that looks. You know, that is a good floor sweeping job. So for me, I needed to make a thing. And I think that's one reason why our classes are so popular and so many people come back time and time again. It's because they can go their whole career and never have anything tangible to show for it. Mm-hmm. Other, you know, other than a pile of cash. But, mm-hmm. you know, and they make, uh, and they have a lot of that, but they, realize that when they're gone there's nothing tangible remaining you know mm-hmm. um, from their career you know mm-hmm. so I think and that's why I th- they're so amazed when they realize they actually made a thing they started with a raw material and they turned it into something functional and usable and beautiful and uh, for I think for most people, whether they know it or not, it's a very satisfying thing to do. And it's more and more, it used to be that that was a very common thing to do. These days, it's very rare to, to take for a person to take a raw material and make something functional out of it. Yeah. So what would you say some of the challenges are that you've had to overcome as you've made these different transitions and stuff like that? Uh, The challenge for, for me, or say somebody wanted to get into doing what I do. The problem is, or any passion job, uh, is if it seems like it'd be a really cool, fun thing to do, that means there's a lot of people who would love to do that thing. Mm -hmm. And when there are people that do it as a hobby, that means people like doing that thing so much they'll do it for free. How do you as a make a business out of something that other people will do for no money? You know, how are you going to pay a mortgage that? And the answer I've found is that you have to do it on such a high level that, um, that only you can operate at, you know, you have to do it on a professional level. Um, but that is the challenge. A lot of people think, um, you know, oh, I'm going to start, they'll tell me to come to the class. I'm going to start a business. I'm going to make a hundred grand a year is all I need. And then I'm just going to go fishing the rest of the time. And, and, <laughs> you know, I'm like, okay. okay. Um, <laughs> you will learn. You will learn so much. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 <laughs> right. But the problem is, is though, it, as soon as it doesn't feel that same fun and excitement, then they're like, that's when they'll quit. And what they don't realize is that's when the business starts. That's where you start to get paid when it, it, it will sometimes it will have to feel like a job. You you may not mm-hmm. feel like getting up and pushing a block plane all day or mm-hmm. or cutting metal, but you have to do it anyway. And mm-hmm. uh, you've got a show coming the next week. It's four o'clock in the morning. You're not done. Your your hobby guys will be asleep and you've got to push through. You don't have a choice. <laughs> right. And um, so, 
so that's kind of the challenge taking some it was the same with like the bike racing thing there's a lot of guys who wouldn't like to ride a bicycle all day every day right that sounds like great time uh, if you get paid <laughs> for doing that but you have to do you have to work even harder to make um if you want to do it for as a career uh, you have to work even harder at things that seem enjoyable and fun because so many people would also love to do that thing and it's the ones that can actually um, put in that extra work and and realize that even if it feels like work sometimes all jobs are going to feel like work sometimes might as well mm -hmm. for me i would rather do something that i'm passionate about even if it's extremely hard i'd rather work 80 hours a week uh, i had a class a couple weeks ago where we had a lot of custom engraving they wanted a lot of extras Shannon, my wife kept track of the hours, which I try never to do. And I, <laughs> I was in the workshop 108 hours in six days. Whoa. And, wow. uh, and, and I'm almost 50 years old. I would rather do what I do at that level than work at the post office 40 hours a week and make the same amount of money. You know what I mean? I would still, uh, because I've got driven by that passion, and mm -hmm. uh, and I would that's just my where I fit. That's my comfort level. That's where I would prefer to be. Wow. It's yeah. interesting. I really like how you were talking about kind of like, you know, earlier on when you're thinking about it, you're like, well, I don't want to ruin a perfectly good hobby. And then now you've definitely like, you know, blasted by with like a turbo engine past that line of like turning that hobby into right. like a like, <laughs> tiny empire and um, <laughs> and, <laughs> and so it, but that's really uh cool though that it's like it kind of still it can feel like a job sometimes or like a chore sometimes but there's still it definitely sounds like you still in, really enjoy the challenge of these different the different tasks and there's also like a nice variety built in i mean it's not right sometimes it's teaching sometimes it's engraving sometimes it's bamboo fly yeah. rod sometimes it's all three at the same time and so it's yeah. kind of nice because you never really get bored like there's always something a little different to do if you are getting real yeah. tired of something absolutely if i was just doing a basic production rod just that same thing over and over and over again yeah. now it's just a regular old job i might as well do something that makes more money and go fishing you know <laughs> but <laughs> but it is nice that we have the classes we have a week of long class we have the enthusiasm of all these new people coming in you're meeting new people there there's a lot of them are doing it for the first time and you remember the excitement uh and how cool what you're doing actually is you know it can become old hat if it's but then you realize you see it through a first timer's eyes Hmm. And it reminds you how lucky you are to get to do what you do. And then when they've about exhausted you at the end of that week, then you get your put on your headphones, stare through the scope, do some, you know, quiet engraving work and think in your own head for a little bit. And, and when you're tired of that tedium, I can go over and playing some bamboo. So it, it is, it is um, set up in for longevity. You know what I mean? You have to think about things like that. You, uh, you can't, you've got to watch out for burnout. You've got to make sure that you keep yourself engaged and enthused about what you do as well. Mm, sure. Yeah. So who, is there someone inside of uh rod, like bamboo rod making that you admire or like a type of person? 
um, and then maybe someone outside of your craft? I think um, in the in the bamboo rod making, really, for me, the most inspiring people to me are, it sounds weird, but on one level, it's our students because it's the guys that want to do it because this is where I was, you know, mm-hmm. want to do it and will actually pony up and go for it, you know, and actually mm-hmm. jump mm-hmm. into it. It's not so much other rod makers that do what I do or whatever, you know, I'm not a I'm not impressed by myself for what I do <laughs> because it's what I do. You know what I mean? And if someone else is doing what I do, uh, well, obviously, you know, that's a thing, but the most impressive <laughs> is, is when guys go from nothing. The hardest part of that is that first step of the journey. You know what I mean? Mm, and, yeah. um, and that's, I appreciate the most those guys that just based on their passion and enthusiasm will, commit to go down that road because the guys are nervous. The people come from around the world and they spend a week with us here and they don't know what they're getting themselves into. (laughs) And we have so many people that say they want to do it, but it's the guys that actually show up, you know, Mm -hmm. those are the impressive ones to me and everybody who shows up, we're going to make sure that they get there. So it's, it's, um, that's not, not any much. So in the, in the, industry side of it but more just the people of it and the the Mm -hmm. enthusiasm because that's the only reason i started this it was not a business uh idea it was just that it's all i wanted to do and i also have to eat you know (laughs) discovered that early on (laughs) Um, and then the uh the real heroes of the industry the real people that i couldn't do without uh, are like my wife shannon that does all the actual work uh, cassie (laughs) And the, because there's so much behind the scenes stuff that allows me to do the fun stuff, mm-hmm. you know, and yeah. be, be the hero that has all the cool info that people want or makes the cool thing. But <laughs> there's a, meanwhile, I've got a crew of people back there working and busting their butts to make sure, you know, if, uh, you know, about once a year, Shannon quits on us and, I start to go up to Home Depot and start putting in my applications because (laughs) I would, I could not do, I couldn't do it alone. You know, there's just Mm -hmm. no way. Yeah. Uh, Mm -hmm. So those are, they're the real heroes of this industry is all the behind the scenes people, but um, Mm -hmm. you know, for this little micro industry that there is, but, but any business, you know, that, uh, when you get into the minutia, it's amazing that any small business can survive whatever it is that you do with all the, <laughs> right. with all the taxes and red tape and things that you've got to deal with and insurances. Yeah. I mean, it's ridiculous. Yeah. So yeah. Um, it's not as just pleasant as doing a, pushing a block plane a little bit and somebody hands you some cash and you <laughs> go fishing, you know, <laughs> I wish it was, but uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Outside of um, making rods and engraving, what else are you interested in and why? Uh, I like anything (laughs) that um, challenges me and has a lot to learn. (laughs) So uh, I've been a sailor for a long time. And, uh, and I love that because it's fly fishing and there's way more efficient ways to get that job done. 
Here's a really ancient, difficult, complicated, potentially dangerous way to do it. I'm like, yeah, that's the one for me. So uh, <laughs> there's it's things that have some sense of nuance about them, you know. Um, mm-hmm. From my cycling days, I've always been a two wheel guy, so I enjoy motorcycles as well and uh, traveling. <laughs> I've done some traveling that way, and I like the old classics and. I've had a number of those and uh, riding on the racetrack uh, because there's so many technical things to learn and to work on so much gear to fuss with and uh, <laughs> completely impractical sort of thing to do in regular life. So it uh, makes it perfect hobby. <laughs> yeah. I love how much impracticality, impracticality plays in your, uh, your interest. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If it makes sense, I'm not really interested in it typically. <laughs> Oh, that's so good. <laughs> Bill, if someone wants to see more of your work, where can they find you? The best way is, uh, well, if you could come and see us here in Blue Ridge would be the best way. You can talk to us in person. We've got our little shop right on East Main Street here where it's, it's a little tourist town. We've got the scenic passenger train, all the little shops and restaurants. It's a neat oh. little town in the uh, Appalachian Hills up here in North Georgia. Lots of good mm-hmm. fishing. But uh, you can also see us on our website at oysterbamboo.com. Awesome. (laughs) Right on. Sweet. Well, Bill, thank you so much for giving us your whole morning and sharing, uh, you know, your story starting at the, uh, you know, from tobacco farms to metal engraving. (laughs) (laughs) You're very welcome. Yeah. Thank you so much. Okay. Next up, we have an interview with Sweetgrass basket weaver, Corey Alston, from my neck of the woods in Charleston, South Carolina. And to give you a preview of that conversation, here is a brief clip. It's a continuous growth. It's a continuous burning passion for my culture because every day that I speak it or I learn more about it or I do more research or do more learning or hear an ancestor tell me some of the tidbits that, you know, that, that are that are so, so, so you know, like little jewels that just adds more to this, this story that, that we have that's been, that's, that dates back to the 1600s. Wow. Dang. <laughs> Need to process that for a second. That's awesome. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh man. Okay, Amy. Let's get ready to umbo. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Never gets old. <laughs> a free way to support us is to rate and review the show. And please subscribe while you're at it. Yeah, and thank you to all the people who have taken the time to uh, rate us with clicking the little stars or actually mm-hmm. writing a review. It's super helpful. We appreciate the feedback and um, oftentimes encouragement. So we're very <laughs> grateful for that. Thank you. <laughs> Also, thank you for your support on Patreon. It helps pay for our website, host the audio, uh, the recording equipment, and other bills. And more support means making the show a more sustainable endeavor. Also, as many of you know, we've committed 15% of our donated income to putting money towards craft scholarships. So on that note, thank you so much to our newest patrons and or donors uh, through the website. Jim, Susanna, Nick, Mary, Mark, Erica, Stella, and Morgan. And then, of course, remember, with the annual giveaway, which ends about 
four days after this um, episode first airs. So on April 30th is when the giveaway ends. Anyone who supported us, whether through the website or through Patreon, um, will be automatically entered in to win a handbound journal and a little bottle of ink to go with it. Uh, and then if you're listening to this after April 30th, we will be doing something similar next year. So stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs> for a year. <laughs> but th- Yes, for one year. <laughs> so, uh, yes. But thank you all so, so, so much for, um, for all the support so far. It really means so much um, and makes it so that we can keep doing this. Yay. <laughs> yeah. You can follow us on Instagram at cut the craft podcast to see images of our guesswork and stay up to date on happenings and releases and you can find us both on instagram at amy underscore umble and at bh Beidler. and thank you so much to our sponsors john c campbell folk school in north carolina and north house folk school in minnesota both of whom play a huge part in keeping handcraft alive and thriving by offering workshops and other educational opportunities uh, of course, thank you so much to Brad Vetter for your graphic design, to the High Divers and Luke Mitchell of the High Divers for both providing us with music for the show and for the back of the house production of the episodes. And then also thank you to Justin Williams for writing those little poetic tidbits that introduce each guest. Um, so we hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Thanks. See you next time. <laughs>